0: good morning. Happy Father's Day. I hope everybody's having as good a Father's Day as I'm having. I got two amazing gifts this year. The first was a book featuring my children, Wyatt and Zoe, and the second was the Duncan down the street is officially open. So if you didn't know that, you've heard it here first. I was partly Pentecostal as I drove up there this morning and was able to get coffee. So we're going to get into a topic for Father's Day. Um, And as I was thinking about sermons that I've heard in the church on Father's Day, most of them have been around the idea of fathers do better. So, you know, go to church more, read your Bible more, lead family devotions more. Those were all really the applications that I remember. I don't remember the text. I don't remember what was really talked about other than the applications. So what I wanted to do today is take a little bit different approach and approach it from a standpoint of what does God the Father want from his children for Father's Day? So, We all get things for Father's Day, but what does God the Father want from His children for Father's Day? So, we're going to be looking at John 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 47. So, as you're turning there, I want to set the stage a little bit because if you've been coming to Cornerstone, you know that we walk usually verse by verse uh, through a passage. And we've been in Galatians, and Tony asked me to do something outside Galatians. So, I'm taking a different approach. I'm taking what I call the family road trip approach through a passage, and since I was just in New York with my family and drove seven hours each way, I was thinking, how do you get through a road trip? You cover as much ground as possible, you stop at points of interest along the way, and then you try not to lose anybody in the process. So that's the goal today, as we're going to be walking through a huge portion of Scripture, which the main theme, I think, really is going to be relevant to us, but I'm not going to be able to stop in every single verse because that would take about five sermons to do. So, we're going to read John 8, and this is verses 31 through 47, so if you're willing and able to stand as we read. And this is John 8, 31 through 47. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we worship you and we thank you for allowing this beautiful day to come together and listen to your words. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through it. I ask that you would give us love and truth as we we walk through this section of Scripture today, and I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So one of the main central focuses of this passage is fathers. And as I was thinking about that idea, the question kind of popped into my head, what is the role of a father? And I did some looking online, and all I could really find was, you know, things fathers should do. So spend a lot of quality time with your kids, don't give them too much screen time. There's a lot of to-dos as a father, but I couldn't really find something that was a good definition of the role of a father. So... The working definition that I came up with is the role of a good father is to guide their children's growth so that they can have the best possible life. And I'll repeat that. The role of a good father is to guide their children's growth so they can have the best possible life. And so as I was thinking about that idea and thinking about the role of a father, I know a lot of us come from very different places when we think about this idea of a father. And I know God the father can be Colored by our relationship with our earthly father. And so, even if we think about that definition, that simple definition, our fathers either did really well in that role or really poorly in that role across their lifespan. And so, as, as we think about that definition and that role, we look at what does God desire from his children? If God is a good father, which scripture says he is, what does God require from his children and what would he want for Father's Day? And I think there's three things that we see in this passage. And there are things that God wants us to know. The first is God wants us to know the truth, he wants us to know our hearts, and he wants us to know his heart. And I'll repeat that. He wants us to know the truth, he wants us to know our hearts, and he wants us to know his heart. And so we're gonna look at the first, he wants us to know the truth. So there's three things that we're gonna see about even this idea of the truth. God wants us to see how to discover the truth what is truth and why it's important. And so as we look at verses 31 and 32, it says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So we're hopping into a conversation where Jesus is talking to the Jewish people in the temple in Jerusalem. And this is right around the time of the Feast of Booths. And in chapters seven and eight, there's discussions going back and forth between the Jews and Jesus about who he is what authority he has to say any of the things that he's saying, and ultimately how he can really claim that he, that God is his father. And you see in John 5, this was such a contentious issue that they were seeking to kill him for it. In John 5, it says that because he claimed that God was his father, the Jews saw it as him claiming to be equal with God. And so Jesus is talking to Jews who had believed in him. In verse 30, it says, many believed over the course of this discussion. And so he's turning to that group and addressing them directly. And so that should really apply for all of the people in this room that claim to know Jesus, as he's directly talking to those who claim to believe. And what he says is, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And this is how we discover truth. So one of the things that's interesting about this is Jesus is saying the way to discover what truth is is you need to abide in his word. And what that word abide means is it really means to live out the commands that Jesus gives. So if you were going to abide in his word, it's really this idea of remaining or almost sheltering in what Jesus says. And so that's the way that we discover truth. But what is truth? And I think for our culture today, that's one of the biggest questions we have to answer. What is truth? Because what I know is a lot of our culture is like Pontius Pilate, when Jesus was before and before his execution, and Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? Because Jesus said, Those who listen to my voice are of the truth. And Pilate said, what is truth? Because Pilate had all the power. And so Pilate could do what he wants, regardless of what the truth is. And I think for our culture, we take a very similar attitude. All the truth is to us today, especially in the United States, and for most people in the secular West, I would say that truth is a group of facts that we get for ourselves that back up what we believe. Because our culture tells us the only way that we can really know truth is if we figure it out for ourselves. The only true source of truth is what's internally within me. And so that's really what Jesus is talking against. This idea that truth is not an establishment of facts that support power, which is what our culture says. It's really get a bucket of facts for yourself that allows to argue your position and never have to listen to anybody else. And what Jesus says about the truth and his answer to what is truth is he, the Bible claims that he is truth. And it says in John 14, 6 and 7, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus is claiming that truth isn't a set of facts that supports what you think. He's saying that truth is a person which is a very different claim to make. If truth is a person, then the only way to know truth is to do what that person does. And so if we're abiding in his word and doing what he does, then we're going to know truth. And the best way that I could think to describe this was, like I mentioned earlier, I really enjoy coffee. And about every six months I'll be reading the news and there'll be an article that comes out that says, you know, either one, coffee is going to kill you. It's the worst thing for you. It's going to give you a heart attack, a stroke, or something like that. And then six months later, I'll read another article, and it says, coffee is the best thing for you. You should drink it every day, at least a cup. It's going to make you live to be 100. And so I read both of those articles, and it never changes the thing I do with coffee. I still drink the same amount every day. And if anything, I'll take the second article, and I'll say, you know what? This supports my claim. Coffee is going to make me live to be 100, so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. (laughs) And so, on the other hand, another thing that I've really struggled with in a lot of my life is road rage. So if somebody cuts you off, I really would have a lot to say to that driver in my own car, talking to them, thinking they could hear me. And one of the things that really stuck out to me, and I think it's really interesting that we picked a song that talked about the Lord's Prayer, was as I was going through the Lord's Prayer a few years ago, it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So this idea that I need to be as forgiving as God is forgiving to me. And so what I started doing a couple of years ago is I started, every time I got cut off and the the rage would just like pop up in me, I would say, I forgive you. And like it would just be a really, a really angry I forgive you. And, And what I found over time though is as I've done that consistently, I don't have that anymore. It's really interesting that doing what I was told to do, the command that I was given by the person who claims to be truth changed the way I fundamentally interact with the world. And that's the difference. And you may think those are silly examples. But really that's what we do in life all the time. We like to collect buckets of facts that just support our side. The news does that all the time. It depends on what you watch. But they take the same story, they slant it their way, they give you your bucket of facts, and then you just go out into the world and say, I'm always right. And so, if Jesus is the truth, then what we have to start looking at is we have to start looking at why is the truth important then? Why does it matter? And Jesus says the reason the truth matters is it will set you free. And so if we think about that idea, what is it setting us free from? And really, if you want to take those two truth claims, whether I collect facts that support how I want to live my life or I follow a person who wants me to know the truth, if you take those two sets of facts, how do you know which claim is better? And the answer to that is, what's the result of either? And if you think about really the people who just collect facts and want to know all the knowledge and all the, all the right information, they tend to be the most argumentative people that you'll probably ever meet. They never change their, their side. They, never, they, all, they just want to win the argument. And it creates dissension, and it creates distrust, and it creates a lot of issues relationally. And then on the other hand, if you're following someone who claims to be truth, it doesn't matter what bucket of facts you have, because you have a person that you're aligning your life to. And I think about that with my son. I have a six-year-old son, and he says things and does things where I'll just be sitting there and thinking, I know where that came from. Like, he's just watching all the time. And that's what we're trained to do as human beings. We imitate. We imitate all the time. We imitate our fathers. We imitate people we respect. We do the things that we want to do based on what we see other people who we think are more successful or better or have more authority than us doing, and that's what we do. And so, really, the importance of knowing the truth comes down to the second thing God wants us to know, which is he desires us to know our own hearts. And so the focus of knowing the truth is we have to know our own hearts. And the truth is we have a heart problem. And so in verses 33 through 38, The Jews answered back to Jesus, and again, these are Jews that believed in him. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The Jews' response to Jesus' claims about truth is to fall back on where they find their identity. And their identity and what you see from them is is really where their heart is. And I was listening to a lecture this past week by Tim Keller, and he was talking about this idea of what is the definition of the heart biblically. What does it look like in the Bible? And one of the things he said is, it's not your beliefs that make you who you are. It's what your heart trusts in, what your heart loves the most, is really who you are. And so what Keller is saying in that quote is he's saying, it doesn't matter what you claim and profess to believe, it's really what your life lives out that shows what you truly believe. And what you truly believe is what sits at the center of your heart. What captures you the most What preoccupies your time when you have nothing better to think about? And the Jews, when when Jesus said to them, This is the truth, their response was, We're offspring of Abraham. You're wrong. We're not slaves to anyone. And that's what we all tend to do. We look at our physical condition and we take spiritual truths and try to just overlay it onto our physical reality and what we think right now. And for them, they were saying, Our racial purity and our right theology are the two things. That make us who we are. At the center of their heart, being the chosen people of God, being the people that the the law had come to, was what made the Jewish people who they are. And that was their heart. And what it tells us is we're all blind to spiritual realities. All of us. And I think we can all believe that as Christians, we're, we're not prone to that. As Christians, we know better. We read passages like this and we just think, oh man, the Jews just need to get it together in these passages. We understand the truth, we see it. But the reality is, I think we all miss the point that Jeremiah 17.9 makes where it says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I think for us, there, there can be a lot of people who claim to be Christians who say, if I go to the right church, or if I have the right theology, if I have the right bucket of God facts, then I'm good. I'll be, I'll be pleasing to God because he just wants me to go to church, wants me to put a little money in the plate, he wants me to do this and that. And if I do those things, he's going to be pleased with me. And the reality is, and I think what we all need to hear, is in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And that's a sobering verse. Jesus is talking to people who claim to believe in him. And what's interesting is that phrase, workers of iniquity, if you think about it in light of the passage we're reading, it's saying you're a slave to sin. You're still a slave to sin. You may have been a person who claimed to know me, but you're still a slave to sin. So how do we know what our hearts really are focused on? If we're listening to that passage, how do we know what we truly are living our lives for. And I think a a verse that helps with this is a verse I usually have not heard quoted in context with Jeremiah 17.9. It's the very next verse. I've I've heard 17.9 a lot. But 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It says, the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. And I was doing my devotions this morning and randomly opened up to Psalm 26, and David said the same thing. He said, test my heart, prove my mind, do those things for me, Lord. Search me so that, I, that he would know that what he was doing was right. And so as we look at verses 39 through 41, we see that Jesus is doing that. Jesus is testing the hearts of these people who claim to believe. And it says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And what I think is interesting with this passage is he talks about this idea of what their heart truly was focused on. They came back to it. When he challenged them, they came back and said, our identity, our father, the person we truly emulate and who we are of is still Abraham. And then further down in that passage, they say, we have one father, even God. And so they keep going back to, we have the right theology. What you're telling us isn't right. And what we need to do is we need to see that we all have that challenge towards God. Because what God says is we need to follow the truth. We need to do what he commanded us to do. And I think with a passage like this, it can be heavy. It can be heavy because we can think, well, how do I know my heart is truly centered on the right thing? And I think really that brings us to the last thing that God wants us to know. He wants us to know his heart. If we're so messed up, if, if we can't see, you know, the forest for the trees, if our hearts are so hard to the things of God, then how do we know if we truly are, believers that are of God. And I think what's interesting is Jesus says in verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that God's heart is for us. God's heart isn't against us. The reason testing and proving comes The reason God challenges our assumptions and what's in our heart is because he loves us. I think about reading with my son, and a lot of times he gets the words wrong. And as we're reading, I correct him as we go through what he's trying to read. And I correct him not because I'm mad at him, not because I have, you know, a heart that just wants to judge him. I correct him because I know he needs to know the truth, he needs to know the basics, because him reading is going to be fundamental for living a good life. And God does the same thing with us. He gives us messages like this. He, he talks to us through his word. He speaks to us in different ways because he's trying to get our attention. He's trying to show us that he cares, that he is a good father and he wants us to have the best life possible. But the reality is there, there's two fathers. He says it in the, in the text in verses 42 through 47. He says, you think Abraham's your father, but there's really only two options. He says, your father is either God or the devil. And that's the spiritual reality. He doesn't give two more options or three more options. He just says, your options are God and the devil. And then he lays out this outline where Satan is the father of lies. He wants you just to believe whatever you want to believe. Because the reality is, if there's objective truth, if there's a standard that we're measured against, everything else has to be a lie. It's the only logical way to face it. If there is objective truth, everything else has to be a lie. And the world says, no, everything is true. Don't believe there's objective truth. And it says that when Satan speaks, he speaks lies. And each one of us, and this is a thought I've had many, many times, is where do our thoughts come from? Why is it that when we're driving down the road, a random thought for something we did ten years ago pops up and condemns us? Like, what is that? Why does that happen? And a lot of people can say, and, you know, I, I studied psychology in school, you know, oh, it's just chemical reactions in the brain. That's that's all it is. But what we see in Scripture is that there is truly a spiritual reality. And how are we going to know it? Certainly not experientially, because this text shows that people just trying to figure it out for themselves, we just tend to put the spiritual into our physical framework and make it work for us. So what I want us to see is that God, on the other hand, is a father. Satan wants us to be deceived. That's what it says. But God wants us to know the truth. He wants us to know the truth. And the truth is that he loves us. The truth is, what it says in 2 Peter, that God's desire is that none would perish, but all would find repentance. That's his desire. That's his heart for us. And that's what he speaks to us as children and says, I sent you someone that you could follow so that you wouldn't have to guess. And that's who Jesus is. He's someone we can follow. And it says, if we know God, we love Christ. Because Christ claimed that he and the Father are one. So if you want to know God, if that's truly your desire, you will see Christ. And what did Christ do? What were the actions of the person that we were meant to follow? He laid his life down willingly. He lived a life that was perfect. And then he died for us for people who couldn't live up to the standard, for people who were so blind. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And why would someone do that? Why would someone die for people who are ungrateful, who are bitter, who are resentful, who are really just trying to live life their own way? If God is our creator and made us to live a certain way, why would he die for people who are just being disobedient? It has to be because at the center of God is love. That's the only way. And so what Jesus did on the cross for us, what he did for us, is he took what we deserved. It says earlier in that passage in John 8 that Jesus always pleased the Father and that the Father was always with him. And then on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He spent his whole life doing only the will of the Father and was forsaken by the Father because of us. And it's because he loved us that he did that. And that's the truth of the gospel. And what we see is he rose again the third day to prove that God's heart was to give us the best possible life. And not just right now, but eternally. Because he rose from the dead as a statement that says, this is your future if you follow me. You will be raised into a new body. You will be raised into a new life. And the whole purpose of what Jesus came to do was just, just to give us the framework to follow so we could do that. And so, I want to challenge us today as we think about this passage. It says at the very end, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not, not of God. If this stuff just bounces off you like it's you know just another TED Talk or podcast that you're listening to, ask yourself Why? Really examine your heart, because God wants us to examine our hearts. And think about it, especially if you claim to be a believer, what is your life saying about what you truly believe and what's at the center of your heart? Are you following Christ? Are you obeying his commands? Are you doing what he did? And it's something that I think we could get legalistic about or we could make and you know, be religious about, but the heart is, if our heart is the same as God's, And we've been saying about that, give us us your heart. If that's true about us, then our heart will be a heart of love. The reason we will be doing the things that Christ did is because we recognize who he is, and we love him for it. And out of thanks and out of love, we do the things that he did. So as we move into a time of communion, I want us to think about that. What's really at the center of our heart? What are we really serving with our lives? And as we think about communion and we think about the broken body of Christ and the blood that was shed, that's the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you're willing to tell your kids hard things. We thank you that you are a God who gives us all we need for life and righteousness, and we thank you that you have blessed us with so much abundance and and the gifts that you've given. I pray for the fathers here today. Lord, I ask that all of us would emulate you as our father, that you would be the one who shows us your kingdom and your way. In Jesus' name, amen.